0: All right, uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> uh, we're looking at verses 6 through 11, and what I've decided to title this walkthrough Acts uh, however long it takes us, which are probably we're going to dance around about a year and a half, I think. Um, it's going to be great. Why are you making those faces? Uh, it's going to be a little while, but man, there's so many great things to see here, and I'm just really, really excited. But we, I've, I've kind of honed in on the word forward uh, when we're talking about the book of Acts, that All through this book, you see that God's mission goes forward, that our call goes forward, that God's cause will never be stopped. It is always on the forward offensive. God's church is unstoppable because our God is unstoppable. And so this morning, we're going to look at what you see behind me, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. If you weren't here last week, or if you were, we we kind of did a precursor message to this message because it was the exact opposite. Last week, I titled the message, Don't just do something, stand there. And what I mean by that is that being still is not the same thing as being idle, that before God calls his disciples to go on the mission, he calls them to wait, and to wait for the Spirit to come upon them, to be empowered for their mission. And there's something to that. With us, before we're to be constantly doers, it's okay to be still and to remind ourselves that we are being sent and empowered by our God. But this week, we're talking about don't just stand there, but do something. <clears throat> a few years ago when I was in seminary, I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was the intramural director, so intramural sports and stuff, that was kind of my jam. And um, I also was like, listen, I'll do this, When they asked me to do it, I was like, I'll do this, but there's only one stipulation, is that I still get to play. Uh, and so I did, and that's kind of messed up, right? That the, the referees that were calling my games were paid, or, you know, I, I decided whether or not they got a paycheck. I know it's, it's a corrupt system, professional sports are the same way. Um, anyway. So we were playing an intramural football game out on the, the quad at the seminary, and um, it was a pretty intense game. I know you're thinking, really? It's seminary. But these guys are pretty competitive, too. We're all sinners, you know? Uh, so we had technical fouls in basketball games, just like you probably did. We had this football game, and um, on my team was a guy named Ross. Ross is a pretty big guy. Um, he's bigger than me, and um, he was, you know, in flag football, it was a flag football game. And so you you don't... Tackle, obviously, you, you also don't stand in front of anybody because the, the, this, this motion is all them. You got to go to their side and pull their flags. And so one guy decided one day he was going to stand in front of Ross. Uh, it didn't go well for the other guy. Um, Ross, it, it honestly didn't even look like anything bounced off of him or like he didn't even recoil. He just kind of kept moving. But uh, you could hear it, man, because when this dude hit him, Ross was running in stride and he had the ball in this hand and this arm, like right, that really hard you know, really, really hard part of your elbow, right above your elbow, it's super hard. I mean, it's a really hard part of your arm. And it hit this dude right in his orbital socket, and that thing popped like you wouldn't have believed. And you guys are wincing. It was, it was worse in person, I assure you. And it made this really loud pop noise, and he straight up broke this dude's face, man. Real talk, he broke this dude's face. And um, he started screaming and writhing in pain. And I was in charge, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, that's the thing that cracks me up about It's like, they paid me to be the guy to respond to this kind of crisis. Probably not a good idea. Um, but it, I remember this guy writhing and screaming and his teammates freaking out. And they were lo- all looking at me and it was like immediately swollen up and this dude was in a lot of pain. I know there's a lot of details, but they looked at me and they said, don't just stand there, do something right? Because I was just like, oh, snap, he just broke that dude's face. Don't just stand there. Do something. And so I'm like, hey, listen, this is a seminary. I'm thinking like, our orthopedic surgeon is out today. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? take him to the hospital. That's what I was thinking. Like, call an ambulance. What do you want me to do about it? So I like ran over to the security office, and I told them, I was like, hey, we got a dude He just broke his face out here in a football game. Um, what do we do? And they were like, call an ambulance. It's was like, oh, that's what I told him. So I went back out there, and I was like, somebody needs to take this dude to a hospital, or you need to call an ambulance to get here. And um, anyway, that's what happened. Yeah, I didn't, I couldn't do anything. I, I, just because I was doing something didn't mean anything, right? We needed to call somebody that could actually see about restoring this dude's absolutely jacked up orbital bones. They wanted some urgency, right? Uh, and that's what an emergency is. You can't say the word emergency without saying the word urgency, because that's what it calls for. An emergency requires a sense of urgency. It requires not just standing there, but something needs to be done. Do something. You know, the gospel is the greatest of emergencies, which means it requires the greatest of urgencies. It's life and death. Literally, it's life and death. Jesus came that we would not perish in death, but he have eternal life. And that's the gospel. The gospel is a matter of life and death. But the sad thing is that we actually see other temporal, physical wounds and, and, and marks and ailments and breaks with greater urgency than the eternal wounds of those that are perishing around us. But one of those is actually a greater emergency, which requires a greater urgency. And so this morning, we're going to look at that, that Jesus' last instruction to his disciples in a world in desperate need of an, emer- an emergency was essentially, don't just stand there, do something and Jesus and the disciples actually had something that they could actually do and that was take them the good news of the gospel that could mend their ultimate broken states so let's look at acts chapter 1 <clears throat> well, let's start in verse 4 okay we'll start in verse 4 we're actually going to look at verses 6 through 11 but look with me starting in verse 4 <clears throat> Luke writes this he says and while staying with them he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. One of the big things that I emphasized a lot last week was <clears throat> that Luke is writing this book, the book of Acts. This is the Acts of the Apostles, probably in your Bible. But more appropriately, it's not just the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the Apostles. And you could even go back further and say it's the Acts of the Spirit of Jesus in the lives of the Apostles. And so we see here that the work of Jesus, this is very important, is continuing. It's continuing, meaning, and we looked at this last week, that the work began in Luke's first volume. This is volume two. The first thing that Luke wrote was the gospel, according to Luke. And so that detailed the beginning of Jesus's life and ministry. But volume two, again, same author, meant to be read together. It's even addressed to the same guy in verse one here, Theophilus, that Luke writes this to say, in volume one, you saw all the things that Jesus began to do, his life and ministry. But in volume two, I'm going to show you how that work was picked up by his apostles and disciples, what he began to do in volume one, and now what he's still doing in volume two. This is the what, the where, and the how of the mission of the church. It's going forward. And so as we're talking about going forward, and we're part of that church, we're going to talk about doing something. It's going to be a very application-heavy message. We'll break it down in, in two main ways. And the doing something, number one, is receiving the torch. Is receiving the torch, meaning that Jesus's mission is now our mission, receiving the torch. When I say torch, you know, your mind probably goes to passing the torch. That's the the metaphor or the image that I'm expecting you to have in mind there. Uh, Passing the torch is a metaphor that we use, but it has literal origin uh, it was an, origin was in ancient Greece it was a religious ceremony that someone would carry a torch from the altar of Prometheus to the altar of Athena, which was in Athens. And so what began as a religious thing where people would pass this torch between these two locations, it became a relay race uh, of, a, of a game, like an, sort of like an Olympic event, a relay race between point A and point B. And so in modern day, the torch is passed to light the Olympic flame for the Olympic games, meaning that it's passed from one person to another. And they're, they're on the same journey, but they take different legs of that journey. Obviously, the metaphor means this image of receiving something that someone else carried and then continuing where they left off. Do you see the the relevancy of that metaphor here? Receiving something, uh, a message, a mission, and picking up where that individual left off. You see, these final moments of Jesus' life on earth are not just the events of his departure. They are the events of Jesus' ministry becoming his followers' ministry. Chris mentioned this, just mentioned this just a moment ago, but Jesus did not just empty his grave and then go and head over to the mountain and leave them behind. No, the passage tells us, we looked at last week, that for 40 days, the, the disciples, the apostles received sort of this kingdom teaching. They received teachings about the kingdom of God, and so that kingdom teaching now leads them to a question in verse 6, which is, is the restoration of the kingdom to Israel Now? It's an easy uh, progression, right? You've been teaching us about the kingdom. The next question is right here in verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, the disciples of Jesus there in Jerusalem were under the impression that Jesus' resurrection and the promise of the Holy Spirit meant that the final salvation, the geographical and ethnic salvation of Israel was imminent. You got to remember in the historical context that Israel was an, a Roman occupied colony, or a Roman occupied territory, meaning that the Roman Empire was all around them, and Israel was not really belonging to strictly Israel, but the Romans had occupied it, and you even had someone that was there sort of as a placeholder for Caesar, because Israel did not have autonomy, but they were occupied by Rome. <clears throat> And so, not only do you have the Roman occupancy that's sort of behind the text here, but you also have in the Gospels this false belief of a Messiah that would come and bring military uh, reign and rule and a political overthrow. But here's the thing. While you see that in the Gospels, I really don't think that these disciples, these apostles were still expecting a restoration of military and a political kingdom that would drive out the Roman armies and restore national sovereignty to Israel. And here's the reason I think that. Because Jesus had been teaching them post-resurrection for 40 days about it. I mean, they would have to be absolute dummies to not pick up what Jesus is putting down at this point. And so I don't think that that's really what is at the heart of their question. Surely Jesus' teaching plus the resurrection plus this 40-day preparation has made this clear. And also on top of that, notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for the question. He only rejects their attempt to calculate the timing of that restoration. Look at verse 7. It says, He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I love that, right? It's the authority of God. God's already, it's fixed. You know what that means? It's in place. Like, we're not sure. We're asking questions. When, God, when is this going to happen? It was determined a long time ago when it was going to be all said and done. And they want to know, is that time now? But he sort of Rejects that and says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So what does it mean then? Well, in verse 6, the word restore, which we just read, restore the kingdom to Israel. The word for restore is used eight other times in the New Testament. And it's usually in the context of healing episodes. And that's important because when you heal, something is usually broken. And so when you have the word restore, you're thinking of something that has been broken that needs to be put back together. Well, they're using the word restore or heal in the context of the kingdom of Israel. Follow me here for just a moment, okay? This is a history lesson. Real quick, Israel had historically been broken. You have Roman occupancy, and so they're not autonomous, but even back further than that, you can look back to the kingdoms of Judea and Samaria, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Go ahead and throw that map image up there. Now, the Roman Empire is vast. And so that sort of beige area would be the Roman Empire in 125 AD, just shortly after the events that we're looking at this morning. That tiny red part that's down there would be the region of Judea. And right just north of that, do you see it in the bottom right-hand corner, that'd be Judea. And just north of that would be the region of Samaria. Now, you have Roman occupancy, for, but way even before that, the kingdom of Israel, which that southern and northern place, were they used to be one thing but way back in the times of the Kings and Chronicles, you have this kingdom that was divided. It was, a, it was a subject of great soreness in the people of Israel because they used to be united. They used to be a one kingdom. But it's been broken for so, centuries, centuries, centuries for so long. The disciples were looking for the time that Jesus then would bring a kingdom that would, listen, heal a divided Israel and therefore rule a united Israel. And so like geographically and ethnically, don't you see that they're looking to something literal? They're they're like, put us back together. We've been broken for so long. And yes, that would include the removal of Rome in a sense. But I think more on the nose is what you see behind me here. Judea and Samaria being on their minds. And so what Jesus does is he endorses their expectation of restoration. He doesn't rebuke that. He endorses their expectation of restoration. But hear this, because we're going to see it in the very next verse, he reinterprets it. He reinterprets not just Judea and Samaria, but we know that Jesus would not just heal Judea and Samaria, he would heal the nations. And the nations would be united under one king, one reign. You see, Acts and our author Luke is far more concerned with the question of To whom is the kingdom given, rather than when will the kingdom appear? And this is the backbone of verse 8, which is an extremely important verse. Look at it with me. He says, but you will receive. Again, but notice the change in direction. He says, don't worry about the time, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I want to spend a lot of time on this aspect of the message, but I just can't. But I want you to know that there is so much influence in that verse, and in all of these verses, so much influence from the prophet Isaiah, which was Jesus's favorite. We talked about that last week. Jesus loved the prophet Isaiah and his, um, his book to us. But there's so much Isaiah influence here. Isaiah wrote of a servant that would pass the torch to other servants. And Isaiah prophesies of a servant that God is going to bring to bring hope and salvation to Israel. <clears throat> Isaiah 32, 15 through 20, which you're not going to see on the screen behind me. I'll just summarize it. Isaiah speaks of the Spirit, I'm quoting, being poured out from on high. And then he talks about the, the servant bringing peace and joy across the land. Listen to that. The Spirit being poured out from on high, bringing peace and joy the word for witness in verse 8 right here in chapter 1 is martus. It's Greek, and it links to the second half of Isaiah. Isaiah 43.10, which you should be able to see on the screen behind me. It says, you are my witnesses. This is going to sound a little familiar. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Isaiah 49.6, later on, same book, same guy. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the present of the preserved of Israel. I will make you, listen, not just Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to, say it, the end of the earth. The of the earth. What does that sound like? I mean, it's, it's almost copy and paste, is it not? Not just Jerusalem and not just Israel. I'm talking about you're going to go to the end of the earth. See, all of these things in Isaiah are clearly explaining that they have Jesus in view, right? We see this in light of Jesus. Seem to have Jesus in view. But now in Acts 1, Jesus is clearly explaining that the role, this Isaiah role, please hear this. What we've just looked at, that role that has belonged to him in his life and ministry, who does it now belong to? Me and you. Do you see the passing of the torch? This thing that's true of the servant that Isaiah prophesied. Now Jesus comes and says, it's yours now. You're the one that will receive the torch. You're the one that through you guys, the Spirit of God will be poured out from on high, and you will bring peace and joy across the land. You will be witnesses. You are chosen servants. You are a light to the nations that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you see that Jesus is picking up where Isaiah left off and said, this was true of me in my life and ministry. But now, here you go. Passing the torch. Carry on the mission. You see, Jesus on that mountain right before his ascension, he is simply saying, and I'm paraphrasing, don't just stand there. It's time to do something. Pick up where I left off. And so considering that message, that mission, there are three questions. What is the something that Christians are sent to do? Where are we supposed to do it, and how is it supposed to be accomplished? What are we doing? What are we supposed? What's the something Christians are sent to do? Where are we supposed to do it, and how is it supposed to be accomplished? I'm going to give you three quick sub-points regarding those questions that you see straight out of verse eight here. A under one would be the what? What are we called to do? Be his witnesses. We're called to be his witnesses. <coughs> I don't know what comes to mind. When you hear that word witness. But a witness is someone who tells about what they have experienced. That's what a witness is. Let's not overcomplicate it. Um, Not just talking about in the Bible, but a witness in general. For me, it brings to mind a courtroom setting. When I think of a witness, I think of a courtroom. I think of the person that goes and takes the stand, and they are the witness. Your witness, right? Maybe you've watched some Law and Order or something. You've heard that. You see, that's what I have in mind here. Because the apostles knew God better than most. What kind of person do you want on the witness stand? I don't know, somebody who's witnessed it, right? That's who you want on the witness stand. You want somebody who knows something, somebody that was there, somebody that can speak on it, has experienced whatever the case is that's in question. The apostles knew. They knew God better than most. They did life with Jesus, who's God made flesh. For three years straight, they did life with God made flesh. They learned his heart. They learned his mind. They sat under his teaching. They received his correction. You see, an effective, a motivating witness is one who knows and has experienced something firsthand. Like I can be an effective witness of um, Tony's cakes. You know why? Because I've eaten them bad boys. Like I can sit here and talk about the strawberry. You know what I'm saying? And I can talk about it. And I can talk about the Hershey chocolate with homemade buttercream icing. You know why? Why? Because he's taught me the way. He's taught me the way, man. Always the, the perfect ratio. Or we could talk about the Butterfinger, man. Again, always the perfect ratio. We could talk about the ratio of cake to icing, that the cake is never dry, that it's always succulent. And yeah, we're really talking about this right now. Here's why I say that. I have your mouth watering and my own is watering, I'll be honest with you, because I'm an effective witness. But the only reason I'm an effective witness is because I've tasted and seen. And the same is true, sorry for all that attention, Tony, I know you love it. The same is true because the apostles knew God. They had tasted and seen. And they were effective witnesses because they had tasted and seen and learned who God was through the man, the God-man of Jesus. God has not just made himself known to the apostles. Has God made himself known to you? Has God made himself known to you? If you have a copy of God's word, you better believe he's made himself known to you. If you are indwelled by the spirit of God, you've done more time with God than the apostles did. If you've been a believer more than three years, think about that. You have done time with God. You should know God. God has made himself known to us. And to be a witness is to testify to who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. But first, got to taste and see you got to be able to taste and see and know who God is if you're going to be a faithful witness. Testify concerning him, what you've clung to about him. But you've got to have clung to him. It's going to be hard to witness if you don't know him. Doesn't that hinge on your understanding of who God is? You've got to understand your own sin and by contrast, God's gospel love. How are you going to be a witness to that if you've never embraced it? you got to taste and see, man. How are you going to testify to his grace if you don't see just how undeserved it is? Do you know how undeserved it is? Do you relish in that? How are you going to talk about the comfort of our God if you've never had to know his comfort? How are you going to talk about God's forgiveness if you've never sat there and just understood the known weight of your sin? you got to know him. You want to take the witness stand in this world? you got to have something to talk about. And the only way that you're going to do that is not memorizing a script it's by knowing God, tasting and seeing and simply explaining. Go be a witness. That's what we are, witnesses. The second little sub-point there is where? Where are we witnesses? Well, Jesus says, In Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where? Ju- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you're thinking, eh, I don't see myself going over there, so what does this mean for me? You see, very important to the book of Acts is knowing where Acts begins and knowing where Acts ends. This book, this mission for these guys, it all starts in Jerusalem because this is what was promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, through your family, through your offspring, would all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's going to start with you right there in Jerusalem but it's going to spread to all the nations. Don't you see how God was weaving this amazing tapestry from Genesis all the way to the book of Acts and through Revelation and through your life? I don't know, man. That's an amazing God if you ask me. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Put that second map image up there. This is what that means for us, church. You'll see that verse down there in the bottom left-hand corner. Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This, um, this verse, many consider Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be the table of contents for the book of Acts. That's what it is. You'll see that right there in the bottom left-hand corner, how I have written chapters 1 through 5 are about Jerusalem. Chapters 6 through 9 are about Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 10 through the end of the book and chapter 28 is about reaching the end of the earth end of the earth to these people would be considered Rome. And you'll see that by these circles you see behind me. There's a tiny red circle in the bottom right-hand corner that is circling Jerusalem. And then that blue circle gets a little bit broader. It goes to Judea and Samaria. But then the green circle is much larger, larger as it reaches the Roman Empire. Now, here's the thing. You think, why does it only circle the Roman Empire? Because that's all they knew. That was the end of the earth. If you get to Rome, you've gotten as far. You reach Rome, all roads lead to Rome, and from Rome lead all roads. That is the end-all, be-all. And you know what's amazing? At the end of this book, you know where the gospel has gone to? Paul has reached Rome, right? It's a table of contents. It starts in an upper room in Jerusalem, and it ends up that the gospel has gone all the way to the end of the earth. And the neat thing here is that God is showing us and showing these guys that this gospel— It is overcoming all geographical boundaries. It overcomes all geographical boundaries. Oceans? Are you kidding me? For our God? It is not just for Jerusalem. It is for Rome. And it's not just for Rome. It's for Mississippi. It's not just for Mississippi. It's for the UAE. It's not just for the UAE. It is for Australia. It conquers and reaches all nations. But it's not just geographical. It is even multi-ethnic. The gospel doesn't just reach Jews. It reaches Gentiles. That's what it's saying. It starts in Jerusalem with a bunch of Jewish guys, but Jesus is saying, We're about to blow the lid off, man, because by the end of this book, you're going to see that it goes to the pagans. And it doesn't just go to Rome, it goes to Mississippi. And it doesn't just go to Mississippi, it goes to Ethiopia. And it doesn't just go to Ethiopia, it goes to Mongolia. You know why? Because the gospel knows no boundaries, because our God knows no opponent that he cannot overcome. Into the earth, unstoppable, forward. You see, Israel's restoration and Jesus' kingdom is happening now. The answer to their question of when is that it's happening now. And you, apostles, will be the vehicle of that restoration, that healing. Guys, we carry a message of healing, do we not? Don't we carry a message of healing? I sure hope so. I hope we don't carry a message of simple behavior modification. What a bunch of despair that is. Because I don't know about you, but I stink. I stink at that. We carry a message of healing, mending the broken, restoring those that have been broken apart. Where? We are to do this in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What's our Jerusalem? I would say that our Jerusalem is our community. It's right here in northwestern Lauderdale County, maybe all of Meridian and Bailey and Collinsville and so forth. That's our Jerusalem. It's our neck of the woods. And God was calling these guys to reach their neck of the woods. But he was also calling them to go beyond that, to their Judea and Samaria, the regions around them. For us, I think that this would be Lauderdale County. We need to have an impact not only in our community, we should have an impact in our county. Maybe you could say it's beyond that and say it's the states of Mississippi and Alabama. We should have an impact in Mississippi and Alabama. But we also should have an impact to the end of the earth, the nations. That's why we want to take mission trips. That's why we want to take up offerings that go to places that maybe our feet never will. But maybe it's why God's calling you to go to a place that maybe you've never considered going before. Maybe God's calling you to the nations. He's called all of us to the nations. In one way or the other, we are missionaries of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So then the question is not whether or not God has called you to take the gospel to these places. That's very clear. The question is, Are you carrying the gospel to these places? And I would say most importantly, it is right here in your Jerusalem. The call to missions is not just a call overseas. It is a call to your dinner table. Are you taking the gospel to the children that sit across the dinner table from you? To the spouse that sleeps in the same bed as you? Are you taking the gospel to your neighbors that live across the street from you? Are you taking the gospel to your workplace and the guy that shares the cubicle, the lady that shares the kitchen with you, the man that sits across the office building from you? Are you taking the gospel to your schools, to those that sit in the desk beside you? This is your Jerusalem. Are we reaching our country? Are we reaching other countries? This is why we should not only care about reaching Meridian— But we should care about reaching, so long as we are able, a small children's care point in Eswatini, Africa. Because God did not just call us to Meridian. He called us to the nations. And I realize that there is a limit to what we can do. But we are to be faithful and go. But it's also why we should care not only about reaching Africa, but we should care about reaching Meridian. These things are not mutually exclusive. We are to reach our Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We were also to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And listen, that's daunting. Come on, man. Are you kidding me? That is daunting, which is why I want to follow exactly what I just said with this. The third little sub point is how? How are we to do this? You will receive power. You will receive power. Don't you know that Jesus is calling them to something that he knew was way over their heads? But he says, you will receive power. Jesus comes proclaiming this kingdom. His kingdom is forever. It is global. He says, my kingdom is unstoppable. Listen, if any human comes on the scene talking about his kingdom and that it's going to be one that is going to be overthrowing, it's going to be global, it's going to be unstoppable, it's going to know no bounds, that would be a really scary thing to hear a human being say, right? If some really powerful ruler came and said, it's never going to be stopped and I'm going to to take over the whole world, you'd think, we need to check that guy, right? Right? It's been attempted before by scary, terrifying individuals. And to to make such a lofty claim that my kingdom is forever, that my kingdom is global, it is for the nations, such a claim requires great power. By a wicked tyrant, it would require a massive and strong military. And the really neat thing here is that Jesus also follows it with a powerful statement. But he doesn't mention a military. The power that would spread Jesus' reign and rule is not an army. It is the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 4, 7 and 8. Right when this mission is kind of getting started, getting off the ground in Jerusalem, Acts 4, 7 and 8 says this. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, they asked the disciples, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter says, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't you love that? By what power are you doing these things? Peter, filled with the power. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Then later on, same chapter, verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. How are they doing it? Power. They're doing it with power. You know why? Because they had received power in chapter 2. When Jesus at Pentecost poured out his spirit on his followers to go and do the mission of witnessing unto him. And we receive power, not at Pentecost in chapter 2. We receive power the moment that we come to salvation in the name of Jesus. How does this power then, God's Spirit, aid our witness? Well, I want to first of all say something that may be a bit of a correction. And I want you to put up your radars whenever you're talking about the Spirit of God. First of all, the Spirit of God is not a it. it is a, he is a he. Spirit of, God's Spirit is not it it's moving, it's whatever. No, he, he is the third person of the Godhead. And when the spirit of God moves, it is not moving, he is moving. It subtracts the personability of who God is as he's working in us and among us. And so how does this power, God's spirit aid our witness? He is aiding our witness. He is making us effective in witness and ministry. The Bible says in John chapter six, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The Spirit who gives life. He helps us in proclamation of the gospel, that He has written God's Word on our hearts, no longer on tablets of stone or in a scroll. God's Word is written on our hearts. He empowers us to have a foretaste of victory over sin. We should have an excitement as we witness to others. You know why? Hopefully because we believe what we're talking about. And the Spirit of God Etches that on who we are. That we're excited because there's a fire within us. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are alive in the name of Jesus. The Spirit, he also provides a wide distribution of gifts for ministry. Spiritual gifts. That we're discovering ways that God has gifted and is gifting us to be effective in your different roles and your relationships. The way that you reach people, God's empowering that. In other words, the Spirit of God is not just a self-esteem booster. He is the power of God in the heart of the believer. He is the means through which the kingdom is increasing and the means through which the kingdom is everlasting. Do you have him? Do you have him? Do you believe in his power? Are you ready to see him move? Or are you already subconsciously stifling him? not even being willing if we're going forward <clears throat> we got to be doing something we are carrying the torch and picking up where Jesus ascended and left off speaking of his ascension this is what we're going to look at next we're not just carrying the torch but number 2 stop staring and start doing <clears throat> Stop staring and start doing. After Jesus says these things, in verses 6 through 8, I wanted to spend a lot of time there. I love those verses, man. But right after that, he ascends to the Father in heaven. This is his ascension. You know, the resurrection gets a whole lot of attention. The ascension just doesn't get that much of attention, does it? But I want to look at this thing together. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. This is clearly an echo. Luke said this earlier in chapter 24 of his gospel about the men in in the dazzling apparel at the resurrection tomb of Jesus. But it says that the guys in white robes here at the ascension, it says verse 11, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The reference in verse 11 of Jesus returning in the same way, it indicates something. Uh, The angels or or whoever these two in dazzling apparel, these white robes are, some people even say that they're Elijah and Moses. Who knows who they are? But whoever these guys are, messengers of God, they stand there and they say that Jesus is going to come back in the same way that you saw him go. And the indicator there is that this story has another act. This story has another act. He's leaving you with act two. But there's an act three that's coming when it's going to be completed. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than any other title. It's a way that Jewish people would refer to a human being, son of man. But Jesus refers to himself as a human being, the prophet Daniel wrote something in chapter 7, a prophecy, that a son of man would not be any normal son of man, but there would be a, a son of man that was greater than all the rest of the sons of men. Daniel seven thirteen and 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's to the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory. Don't miss this next one. And a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Come on, you guys. It sounds like Jesus, man. It sounds like a son of man, a human being that is not unlike any other human being. One who has a permanent kingdom because he will never die. One who has ultimate dominion because he is the author of all living things. The reference in verse 11 of Acts 1 of Jesus returning in the same way indicates once again that there is another act to be accomplished. The conclusion of his ministry as he ascends and he's passing on to a successor. You know, there was another guy who was taken up in clouds into the heavens and passed on his ministry to a successor. Anybody? Elijah. Elijah was taken up in cloud to the heavens and passed on to his successor, Elisha, who continued his ministry. And Jesus, I mean, come on. The hyperlink is there, right? Jesus is being carried off into the heavens, passing on his ministry to his successors, and they needed to stop staring and start doing. Don't just stand there. Do something. Guys, the, the ascension of Jesus was not the finish line. It was the starter pistol. It wasn't the finish line. It was the starter pistol. In church, we must not just stand there. It's time for us to do something. Do you see our mission as an emergency? If so, do you have urgency? Are you willing to be a witness? You know, I think when we think of evangelism, it's, it's intimidating because we think of knowing all the information. We think of making sure and not messing anything up, make, making sure we don't sound stupid. Guys, evangelism is, we're not, Jesus is not asking for creative storytelling and entertainment or exaggeration to hone people in. The key to witnessing, you have somebody on the witness stand in a courtroom, you know what the key is? It's not being exciting. It's telling the truth. What's a good witness do? A good witness tells the truth. Evangelism is best seen not as a presentation, but a conversation. Evangelism is not some big, robust presentation. It is a real, intimate, heartfelt conversation. Testify to what you have heard. Tell the truth to what you have seen and heard. If you have heard that the gospel is good news for the sinner, just tell the truth. Say that. If you've experienced the salvation and hope of the living God, don't build some big, robust presentation. Just tell the truth. Do you have life when you were dead in your trespasses and sins? That sounds pretty exciting to me, man. Tell the truth. Have you received the Spirit of God? Tell the truth about Him. Have you enjoyed the mercy, the never-ending mercy in favor of God? If you've enjoyed it, don't you like to talk about the things that you've enjoyed? You go see a movie that you enjoy, you become an evangelist for that movie. Be an evangelist for that which is infinitely more valuable to us. What have you felt? Tell the truth about it. Have you felt the comfort, the deep inner comfort that when the world is corrupt and dying around us and it's so tumultuous and you have constant sufferings and it's all falling apart at the seams, do you experience comfort because of who you have in Jesus? Tell the truth about it. Talk about that. Have you experienced joy that is unshakable? I think the, the world will want to hear about that. Have you experienced peace in times of turmoil? That sounds like something that's attractive to me. Have you experienced security when everything around us is insecure and fading? You don't have to memorize some big, robust presentation. Just be someone that really believes the product. Have you tasted and seen? Tell the truth. But maybe you never have. Maybe church has been something that you've done. You come and you hear the sermons and you hear the way that you're supposed to live. But these have never been words of life to you. Because while you've come and done the religion thing, never have you seen, you know what? I'm the one that's in despair. I'm the one who has never really taken hold of the depravity of my heart, the weight of my sin, and ask forgiveness from the only God who can do anything about it. Maybe it's hard for you to tell the truth and be an evangelist because you're the one that needs to receive the the good news. And today, man, I'm just begging you. Honestly, I'm just begging you. Lay it down. I know it's, it's hard to work yourself up to that on a Sunday morning where you're tired and you're exhausted and you're ready to go eat lunch. There is nothing more important in your entire life When was the last time you heard somebody say that? Nothing, and I don't even know you, but I know you. There's nothing in your entire life that is more important than falling on your knees in desperation and saying, God, I am a sinner and there's nothing that I can do to save that, to redeem that, but I know that you died for me. And I don't know the ins and outs, I don't know all the right things to say, but I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me on the cross and that he was resurrected and I want to simply ask you to be my savior and give you my life as my Lord. Do it. Do that today. And you don't have to do some big fancy religious thing to make that happen. But do it sincerely. Do it sincerely. And be willing to, whatever it takes, follow Jesus from this day forward. And if that's you today, you don't have to do a big, robust demonstration of that. Give your life to Jesus. And he will dictate the rest of your path. Make him Lord and Savior. And you can do it on a simple, mundane Sunday morning such as this. Every time we gather, we are huddled around the flames of the good news of the gospel And today, I want you to experience the warmth of that. The word uh, witness, I mentioned this earlier, it's martus. It's where we get the word martyr from. It means someone who tells the truth, as I said already several times. But also, it's someone who tells the truth uh, no matter what the cost. Please listen. Please, please listen. There is no getting around it. We cannot major on the minors and minor on the majors. We as a church, fellowship, but I really mean the church, especially in our, in our region, in our area, we, we tend to major on the minors, and we tend to minor on the majors. That's why you really try to live a good life, a moral life, try to be in church. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm saying that Jesus had one last instruction before he left. It was to be an evangelist. It was to be a witness, and we're petrified of that, and we sort of relegate that to the closet and say, I can be a Christian, and and I can kind of live with the fact that I'm not really an evangelist. Guys, this building should not be just a Christian meeting place. It should be like an airport terminal where we we come to go. We come to go. We come to go. We come to go. When you walk out here and you drive out of this parking lot over here, that blue sign says something along the lines of you are now entering the mission field. And yet, do we treat it that way? Do we go and, and truly carry the gospel as our marching, marching orders? Or do we just see this as a Christian meeting place? Guys, missional living is a major. And if we are dropping the ball on it, it is time to confess it. It is time to repent of it. And it is time to resolutely make a plan right here, right now. And if you feel uncomfortable about your standing as a bold missionary, you're in very good company. Because I'm uncomfortable about mine. If you feel uneasy about that, you are in the right place. Because today, I'm calling you to do exactly what I'm going to do. Which is to seek to be a better witness and an ambassador of the name of Jesus because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I think I'd see a whole bunch of them if I asked if it was a major or a minor, and if it was a minor, to raise your hand. I think I'd see a lot of them. We're going to talk about evangelism a lot in the book of Acts. And in my preaching, it doesn't get near the emphasis that it deserves, and I'm really glad that we're in Acts, because we're going to talk a lot about it. What are some action steps that we can take Well, today, I want you to begin with prayer. Again, we can go and try to be witnesses. We can go and do it everywhere. But if we don't do it in the power of God, we will fail. It must begin on our knees, asking God to be the one that not only sends us, but the one that empowers us to go and be about the mission. Today, begin with prayer. I would also encourage you to take baby steps. Don't go feel like you are got to conquer. And, and if, you don't have, if you don't come back to this place next week with, some, with a name, then you failed. Take baby steps. Look for little opportunities to have conversations that testify and tell the truth about the good news, about salvation and hope, the Spirit of God, God's mercy, the deep comfort that He's given us, the joy, the peace, the security. If you just listen, isn't the world just terrible? We live in the same world. And you're, you're, every day you got co-workers that come up to you and say, and you see so-and-so, you see that thing, and this world. That is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to point to the one that comes after it and the Savior who has stepped into it. We're just not listening and we're willing to tell the truth. And be reminded that this is not about a presentation. It is a conversation. I have juggled how to end this sermon for about 72 hours because I'm not sure what the best way to do it is. And honestly, I have like three different conclusions written right here and they're all struck through. I'll show you later. They're all struck through because I'm just going to listen to the Spirit right now. And I think that this is how I want to end the sermon. I want to ask you to Bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on the stage as they prepare to lead us in a song of response. And as I said, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on how we feel like we, (laughs) whether or not we're majoring or minoring on evangelism. I'm going to go ahead and assume that, and that's a dangerous thing, right? But I'm going to go ahead and assume that you guys are a lot like me. And that this is a place where I need work. And thank God that he is exposing that to me and to us right now. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want you to pray. And I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think and ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you who is your immediate mission field. I mean names. Faces. They may live in your home. They may be children that you want to see make professions of faith. They may be co-workers. They may be close friends. They may be acquaintances. They may be strangers. But I want you to picture that person in your mind right now. The mission begins with prayer. And I want you to begin to pray for them right now. Pray for a soft heart. Pray that God would begin to work. And pray as you pray for them, pray that you will be willing to be the vessel. That you would look for opportunities. That you would be sensitive to that.